0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sydney Coach Replay Show. This month we're talking about the roles of coaches, different roles that we have. And sometimes our coaches aren't just coaches, they're also building leaders, they're the boss, they're the campus or or district wide leader. And so I'm so excited to have Dr. Justin Bader, director of the Principal Center, host of the Principal Center radio podcast, author of uh, Now We're Talking, 21 Days to High-Performance Instructional Leadership, and uh, host of Ascend Live, a video show on ed leadership. So uh, he's here with us now. Our our other co-panelist wasn't able to make it. She's a principal in a school and uh, was called for, an emergency principal meeting, as we all know how that goes, especially this year. So, we're wishing her well and we'll hopefully catch up with her another time. But welcome, Justin.
1: Thank you so much, Corey. Great to uh, be here. And Heather sends her regards, but uh, we certainly understand being a principal mm-hmm. means uh, being called into uh, all kinds of things on short notice. Right. So, certainly right.
0: understand. Yeah, running a building and uh, full of people and children is. definitely a big task again especially especially this year so we're talking today about just the uh differentiated roles of being an instructional leader and being a coach and you know lots of the coaches that i work with are wearing dual hats right multiple hats where they are the uh principal in the school or an assistant principal they you know, are seen as the boss, they have a role in evaluation even, um, but then they're also trying to formatively support and grow their teachers professionally in addition to that. So tell me, what are some of the roles? I know you've got three that you plan on sharing with us. So what are the three roles instructional leaders can play in changing teacher practice?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I I think, you know, there are always multiple hats. It's a little bit different Mm -hmm. in every school. And certainly, you know, the, the most common role is that of an administrator, right? Mm -hmm. I I think there are maybe like two schools in the world that don't have a principal, you know, you see news stories about them sometimes, but, you know, many, many schools do have instructional coaches, but of course many don't. So I think, you know, I, I work primarily with principals and I think that, that interplay of, of different roles is, uh, you know, is the most real for people who do have those formal admin responsibilities. So, the uh, the first role that I thought was worth highlighting, because sometimes it it does interact with even the role of, of someone who can can just focus on coaching, uh, is that role of a of a boss, right? Everybody mm-hmm. who is an administrator is a boss, a supervisor in some way. And that makes us a little bit uncomfortable to talk about in education, right? Like we don't really like calling ourselves the boss. We don't really like thinking of ourselves as supervisors. You know, we prefer to think of ourselves as coaches, as you know, uh, you know, instructional leaders, as transformational leaders. Like we have all these other words we would much rather use than boss. But the reality is, sometimes what we need to do is on the supervision side. It is on the accountability side. You know, making sure that people follow through on things. And that does interact directly with our instructional leadership work. And I've, I've noticed a difficulty that happens when we try to coach people to compliance, right? If someone is simply out of compliance with something that's basic and essential, right? If you're not taking attendance, if you are not planning your lessons, well, it it might be tempting to, to, to try to soft pedal that and say, well, I'll just you know kind of coach them up, I'll build them up, I wanna take a, you know, a supportive uh, approach. But there are some things where, <clears throat> It's absolutely needed for us to, uh, you know, to to take a hard line and to to be the boss mm-hmm. and to not try to coach people into things that are really simply basic expectations and behaviors. So the the boss role is there. If we if we do need to uh, to get someone to change their behavior, we can do that you know do that through that kind of directive feedback. But if you're like me, I, th- I think most of us are pretty reluctant to do that. Right? Like we really only want to wear that hat if we absolutely have to. Ninety nine percent of the time. We don't want to wear that hat, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the least pleasant. Nobody likes to see us coming when we've got that boss hat on and mm-hmm. we want to be the coach. We want to wear that coach hat as much as possible. So, and I, I think this is the one, of course, that overlaps with instructional coaches, instructional facilitators, right. uh, you know, anybody who's in a non-administrator role that provides support to teachers, you know, department chairs, you know, so the the coach teachers, function, yeah. yeah, lead teachers. Yeah. Um, you know, anything else you can think of, um, jump in here, but, you know, it it covers so many different positions. Um, you know, that, that coaching role, I think in the coaching role, what we're trying to change is not the behavior, but we're really trying to improve people's practice by changing their thinking. Right. If I, if I look at like, what is the leverage Mm -hmm. for improving practice at in the, with the boss hat, you're really just trying to change their behavior. You're not doing this. You need to do it with the coach hat. People kind of know what they're supposed to do. They're they're doing the best they can, and it's the lever that we're trying to, to pull to, to bring about improvement. You know, the <laughs> to, to try to nudge that the that boulder uphill a bit is is really to improve the thinking, right? So that's where mm-hmm. we get into things like asking good questions, right? Paying close attention, um, you know, getting people to reflect on their practice. And I know you have seasons and seasons, uh, many many episodes on uh, on coaching in particular. Mm-hmm. But I think, for the uh, you know for for instructional leaders who want to change teacher practice, most of the time we're going to want to be in that coach role because that's where we're we're all kind of there voluntarily, right? The teachers right. there, you know, s- you know, somewhat on board. They're not they're not being forced to do something. Uh, you're there in kind of a collegial capacity. It's not just something that you have to do to to hold somebody accountable. So it's just much more pleasant. And uh, hopefully, this is where we want to be most of the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: the third role is one that I realized I needed to play when the teacher necess- wasn't necessarily the one who needed to change. Right, Like sometimes I would be in a conversation with a teacher about their practice and what they were doing and kind of what the opportunities for improvement were. And sometimes I would realize, you know what, this is actually not something the teacher needs to change. It's something that I need to change as a building manager, as a person who's mm-hmm. in charge of the schedule or the budget. I need to change the circumstances under which this person is is able to work because no matter how great a job they do, if the circumstances are what's wrong, then that kind of falls to me. That's my job as a leader. So I call that the leader role. And we say that the type of feedback we're engaging in there is not reflective feedback. It's not directive feedback like you'd give as a boss, but we call it reflexive feedback. The idea that it's a two way street, I'm giving feedback, but I'm also receiving feedback from teachers in those conversations about what conditions they need to work under if they are going to do their best work. I think the the listening there is really key with that leader role.
0: Yeah. And I love how you have, have differentiated these three roles, especially for our building and organizational uh, leaders, right? Being able to, because many of them do find themselves in those you know, three kind of situations or roles with their folks. we have got our people who um, maybe are voluntold or are being voluntold that, hey, we need to make some changes in your classroom. And that directive feedback then is part of that. Then those who are um, a little bit more intrinsically driven, they're interested, they want the feedback, we're able to have that collegial conversation and partner with them in the growth of their classroom, and it's it's that mutually beneficial. And then looking at that kind of broader scope of being the building leader or the organizational leader and thinking about how all of these circumstances, as you mentioned, come together to support that teacher and what they're trying to do. The goals they're trying to attain, the learning they're trying to um, create in their classroom and really the culture in your building as well. So. I think those are really, really great differentiators, and it is something that's more unique to our administrators, uh, instructional leaders, than it is to our folks who are not in that evaluative stage. They're not in. They're not the boss. They're the instructional coach, instructional support team leader, any of those other pieces. So it's really, really is unique. Yeah, I want.
1: Well, yeah. Can I ask about that? Yeah. You know, what do you think about coaches who get information that might fall under one of those other hats because i I think Mm -hmm. that's always a a little bit of a challenge a little bit awkward as a coach you find out things that maybe you kind of wish you didn't you kind of wish that had gone straight to the principal because it's not your area Mm -hmm. i don't know what's what's been your experience in in kind of wrangling that information that you kind of that's not me
0: (laughs) right yeah not my lane yes definitely you know sometimes there are where a teacher has you know presented a need that it recalls for that leader and i am not that leader as the instructional coach sometimes it's because i'm the campus-based coach in other circumstances i've been the consultant coming in to the organization providing support to that teacher and so then it's the conversation on how do we get that support you know how do we get that leader to acknowledge that there are some things that are impacting our growth that are um, more in their lane. So sometimes that's a direct conversation with the leader. But for me, I always try to empower the teacher to go and have those conversations with their administrator. So that way they can, you know, really work together for that. But they're also built that capacity that they're able to reach out for those things. There's so many times as a, as a coach where we are, um, brought into conversations or circumstances that aren't always part of our wheelhouse you know sometimes we are brought into conversations that really do require maybe a counselor or a therapist and as much as we want to be able to support that person and be there for them they maybe need another individual to really help them work through some of those more personal pieces or those emotional pieces that they're feeling so um i think Knowing your limits is one of the most important things that we can do as a coach and being able to identify if you are able to wear multiple hats, which is the appropriate one, but then also when that hat is not on my rack over here and uh, I need to find somebody else who's going to be able to support that teacher in that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And let me just say to administrators, you know, if you have an instructional coach, wonderful, pure gold to have an instructional coach in your yeah. building but this is precisely why they should not be the only people who are getting into classrooms yes. right if they're the only people who have eyes on the problems that are going on then they're in this awkward position of having to bring problems to the administration and say hey so-and-so is really strong, you know you might need to walk by and you know see what's going on there like you don't want your coaches to be put in the position of tattling that is not right. a good right I mean, that's not a good position exactly
0: exactly so, there's uh you know it, with the cohorts of coaches and leaders that I work with, we talk a lot about what can, what should be on and off the table when it comes to conversations about a teacher's professional growth. And and we pull from Pete Holland and Lisa Simrel's book in Creating a Culture of Reflective Practice, they give some really great kind of guidelines, you know, what their reflective level is, what their goal is on the table, definitely. But when it comes to performance and um, kind of where they are, that really should be something that, the building administrator then goes and sees for themselves, right? Because we can very quickly and easily move into that kind of tattletale feel. I remember when I first, I was doing my internship for instructional leadership and uh, suddenly my peers saw me different because I was spending more time in the building office, more time next to our building administrators. And uh, it suddenly felt like, well, certainly we have to be careful of what we say or do or ask around Corey because, you know, we don't know exactly what that relationship is. So clarifying how I communicate with campus administrators and, you know, with others who might be in support department chairs and lead teachers of that that individual, I think, is also important. And then sticking to that, for sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: Great point. Great point.
0: So I'd love to, for us to, to go to that that kind of uh, uncomfortable hat that you first mentioned of being a boss. And directive feedback, you know I talk a lot with my coaches about based on the reflective level of a, a teacher, where directive feedback is kind of most appropriate based on their mental model at that point and how they're seeing and reflecting on their own instruction. Um, but for you, what are your uh, suggestions for, the conditions that really are the best in order for directive feedback to actually be helpful for a teacher.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it comes down to what we're trying to improve, right? If we're trying mm-hmm. to improve someone's thinking, then directive feedback is probably not going to get us there, right? Like you can't just tell someone be smarter, make better decisions. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's kind of like saying what's wrong with you, right? That's not helpful. Right. But right. if what we're trying to change is, you know, following through on things, you know, Mm -hmm. we're trying to change behavior. If someone is dropping the ball or if someone is just ignoring something that they should be attending to, um, then, you know, like if you have a a teacher who's ignoring the IEP modifications that a, Mm -hmm. a student needs, like, hey, you have to read the IEP, you have to work with the SPED teacher to meet this kiddo's needs, then directive feedback can be effective in changing the behavior. And I think one place where we've got to look at the overlap and the the relationship between reflective feedback with that coach role and Mm -hmm. the directive feedback with the the boss role is that sometimes we might discover that people are using reflection to dodge accountability and Mm -hmm. i don't know if, if you've had anybody who uh who kind of fell into this pattern in in your work but sometimes people will enjoy the safety uh and and kind of the out that's provided by a reflective conversation and a, and a coaching relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, part of the, you know, the softness of a coaching relationship is that you have a little bit of, of agency to say, no, I don't want to work on that. Or yes, I, you know, I, you, you can shift the, uh, the focus, uh, you can move the goalposts a little bit right. when yeah. you're being coached. And sometimes people do that in order to avoid confronting things that they're not comfortable with, to avoid doing things that they just don't want to do. And sometimes we have to say, you know, or, or work with, You know the other members of our team to you know to come to a solution, and and say, hey, look, this is something that's got to get done. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can't just reflect your way out of it. You can't say uh, that you've just decided that that doesn't matter. You don't have that. You know, like you have to do this. Mm -hmm. And again, not fun, right? This is is not something that anybody enjoys. Um, If this is super fun to you. <laughs> then, Share then, your
0: ways and how yeah, you make that enjoyable, right? You
1: love this, but yeah, most of us just do not enjoy that kind of thing because mm-hmm. it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, and it's not—it's mm-hmm. not really what drew us to instructional leadership. But uh, yeah, I would say if if someone is is really dodging, if they're using being coached as a way to avoid being accountable, then yeah. I think that that may be where we need to play a different role.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting that that you say that, and I think if you are the the individual who has those multiple hats, right? It's a little bit easier for you to pick that up. Whenever I was working in special education as a coordinator, a big part of my role was coaching, but it was also ensuring compliance. So your IEP example definitely hit home for me. I had many of those conversations where this is not a choice. It's not that these might be supportive these are the things that we as a team have has dis- have decided that this student needs legally and educationally in order to be able to grow and access the curriculum so we need to begin doing this and then following up with you know how do we begin taking steps towards that sometimes because we haven't been accountable it seems like such a big leap to begin doing that or even to begin you know if it's an attendance issue you have to take attendance, you have to submit it by this time, so let's talk about a plan to make that feasible for you, get you in a routine so that way it gets done Um, and it's not something that you're constantly trying to remember to do, but let's create some automaticity around some of these non-negotiable pieces. Um, When you are a coach uh, and that is your only role, it can be difficult when as a consultant coach sometimes i'm hired to come work with a teacher on a very specific non-negotiable piece of instruction but then as i'm talking and getting to know that teacher i see a little bit of that kind of hiding through that reflection and well what i really want to work on is this thing over here i don't feel like i can get to that unless i've had this and sometimes there's a direct connection it's rigor that i was asked to come and work with but we've got some classroom management issues that the teacher wants to Um, be supported in and, and support. We definitely have to have classroom management ready and in line in order for rigor to really be able to have it across our classroom. So some of those things they do mesh, but then when they don't, if you are that coach or if I have a coach in my building who is addressing that, what is the best way you think, Justin, for a coach to maybe reach out to the admin on their team and without being that tattletale, but also to kind of say, hey, I think we have a situation here. Um, what do you think is the best way for a coach to approach that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the very best, this is cheating to answer it this way, but I think the very best is if your administration is in classroom so much that you're not in that position, right? Like that. Right, that's the best yes. You know? Yeah. Uh can't can't get away from that. But I think if you know, if something does come to your attention that mm-hmm. that does need to be on that radar, like you don't want to break the trust. You don't want to violate mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, I don't want to say like the sanctity of the coaching relationship, but that's you know, exactly that trust, the word
0: I was thinking of. So yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, that's, that's so important. Um, I think, you know, you, in, in some ways, you know, we, we try to get to, you know, the administration to just kind of notice on their own, Hey, you might want to stop by and you might notice mm-hmm. some things related to blah, blah, blah. And you know, if, if the administration is never in classrooms, that's not going to be real, right. That's going to be pretty obvious that right. so uh, right. <laughs> again right. the more administrators are in classrooms the uh, the easier this gets mm-hmm. i think you know uh, as far as wearing the boss hat as a coach i think you do have the right to not have your coaching clients jerk you around right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and not follow through you know because not following through in the name of reflection that's just cheating right like that's not that's not a good way to be a coachy, mm-hmm. and i think it's okay to hold people accountable to that and say hey like i'm you know i'm gonna put a lot of time into supporting you and i want you to make the choices about how you're going to change your practice but at the same time after you've made a choice i do expect you to follow through like you have obligations to me even though you have you know you're driving the bus here this is your practice that we're, we're striving to improve but i you know i do expect that you are following through so so on the on the follow-through side that's
0: mm-hmm.
1: i think a reasonable thing to ask It is tough if there is something of, you know, more concern of a concern that you feel like you kind of do need to tattle. You kind of need to, it's, it's unethical to know certain things and not say anything. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are different things that come into play depending on what it is, right? Like obviously if someone is harming students, the coaching relationship is not the priority there. Exactly. You got to let that go and say, look, I'm a mandatory reporter. You can't you know, do anything illegal, you know, or I am absolutely going to tell on you, we all are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a norm that we have to reinforce in our profession that, you know, we're colleagues, we've got each other's backs, but not for crimes, right? You right. Are... <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> there are, there are. There are pretty bright lines there. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to things that are, you know, a little bit more gray areas or judgment calls, uh, or, you know, things that people are just struggling with. Um, I think one thing that we can do is we can describe the ethical dilemma that we're in as a coach and say hey, you know, this is something that uh, you know is 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 not really my area, but it's something that's come to my attention and I would like, you know, I would like your input on the best way to handle that. I can't let it go. I you know, I do need to to make sure that this is being addressed, that you know that the appropriate people are involved in this, but mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people. So what would you like me to do? I think it's mm-hmm. sometimes it works in the relationship to just ask that and say you know, I can tell. You know, you're struggling with X, Y, Z. You know, we need we need to to bring in so and so into the loop on this. Uh, and then, of course, that may go poorly. <laughs> you know, you may get a no, right. no, thank you, I, I don't want to do that. Um, right. And I think it's also, you know, sometimes a conversation that you just have with the, you know, with your administrators and say, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. I don't want to ruin the coaching relationship. I think we've got a good thing going there. Uh, we're making progress, but at the same time. I have to let you know about this so that you can do uh, the right thing. And sometimes they're able to, uh, you know, to be a little bit more sly about, you know, mm-hmm. how they became aware of it. And hopefully that that can, uh, you know, can minimize the the damage to the relationship. But uh, right. yeah, I, I think we've got a lot of factors to balance there, so it, it really yeah. depends on what it is.
0: I mean, when we are um, working with humans, it can be so complex, can it? And and we're building relationships and and developing individuals um, all for the sake of our students. And it's high stakes uh, no matter what role you're in. And so those tricky situations do come up. And what I think is just so valuable is at the beginning of the year, if you do have other instructional leaders on your campus, um, being able to have these conversations about what is on and off the table, how will we work in alignment of each other without necessarily weaving in and out of each other's lanes but also making sure that nothing gets missed in the middle, right? Because I'm not in the classrooms enough or um, because we don't have frequent enough conversations about the goals of our teachers and um, you know, where, where they are in you know, their reflective capacity or whatever it might be. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about resistance. It's never fun to talk about, as you mentioned. We, uh, especially we want to take that kind of coaching stance, the hope is that uh, it's a volunteer, not a volunteer, that they are driven and they want to be there, they are invested in the time, they're going to follow through. And uh, when we are a coach, we might get see that resistance a little bit more than if we are the administrator who is wearing the coach hat. So. For those administrators who are taking that coach stance, again, they may not get as much direct feedback because they are the boss, essentially, in the building, but is there still resistance when our leaders act as coaches? And if so, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, and I, I guess I would divide that into direct and indirect resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have the direct resistance. Like sometimes people will say, especially if you're new to a role or if you're younger. I became a principal at 27, and uh, you know that might have tempted people to, to be a little bit more direct in their resistance now and right. then. Uh, you know, you might have people say to you, "I actually don't want you in my classroom. I know you have to do formal observations. Let's set those up. We'll do one in the fall, one in the spring, and then I don't really want to see you in my classroom." If you have somebody say something like that. Uh, I think it's best to to, to raise it directly, not confrontationally, but to say, hey, look, in order to do my job, I do need to be in classrooms more than just those formal observations. Right. You know, I need to know what the needs are in our building. I need to know where our students are. I need to know where professional practice is. And that means I am going to be in classrooms. I cannot do my job if I'm not in classrooms. And I think that's a better framing than the other one that we can legitimately use, which is I have the right to be in classrooms and you do not have the right to tell me that I can't come in your classroom. <laughs> right. You may have to play that card at some point. Right. And I, I have had to play that card and it was kind of satisfying to see the teacher's union rep repeat my words <laughs> to the person who was being directly resistant and saying, no, you can't come in my classroom. So yeah, 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 he can. Don't, <laughs> you're not going right. to get away with that. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that, that card is there to be played if you need it. Um, I think the indirect resistance um, often does look like dodging or changing the subject or mm-hmm. uh, not following through and saying, hey, last time right. we talked about this, this time let's talk about something totally different. Next time let's talk, you know, and you can't, you don't ever have to actually change your practice if you change your focus every week. So mm-hmm. uh, there, there's that kind of jumping around to different things. Um, I, I often found that uh, certain people like to philosophize and I personally like to talk talking about education philosophy it's a lot of right. fun but the problem is it doesn't get at practice right if it's a if it's a a, a way out of talking about your own actual practice mm-hmm. and what you might want to do differently then philosophy can be a dead end and of course we're, we're familiar with dead ends like or, or distractions like complaining about the parents complaining about the students complaining about pol- political leaders and district politics and things like that there right. are lots of, of off-topic dodges that people use to, uh, you know, to indirectly resist talking about their practice. But when it comes to, you know, what what is this person actually thinking, we got to watch out for that philosophical one, because it sounds like we're getting at the thinking, right? We, we said earlier, we we want to raise the level of the teacher's thinking, but we want to be careful that that thinking is not divorced from their actual practice, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and getting getting too philosophical can be, can be an example of that. So I, I think that gets us to evidence, right? Like, what do we mm-hmm. do about it? I think what we do about it is we anchor everything in an evidence. Not hey, what do you think? Not what do you you know? Do you like Bloom's Taxonomy or Webb's Depth of Knowledge better? You know, like right. those kind of opinion questions can go in all kinds of different unproductive directions. But if we're anchoring it in what actually happened in the lesson, what we saw, what's on the video, what's in your notes, I think that's going to be the most important thing for keeping our conversations on track.
0: Yeah, definitely, and and you have a great metaphor that you shared on our takeaway document. Let me just share that for folks so they can see where they're going to be able to grab some great things from you after our um, our show today. The these great ten questions, evidence based questions for better feedback on teaching, um, right here for folks, but. I love this. The teacher practice is like an iceberg. 10% is visible, 90% is hidden beneath the surface. So I think that's so uh, appropriate to bring into this conversation about evidence, right? So what does that mean? Tell me more about this metaphor here. And what implications does that have for us as we give feedback?
1: Yeah, so I I like the iceberg metaphor because it's very obvious that most of an iceberg is underwater, right? Like everybody knows you can fly over an iceberg in an airplane, you can see it, but you're really only seeing, like that's just a metaphor, like it's a figure of speech, right? You're seeing just the tip of the iceberg. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we get into classrooms, we think we're seeing everything, right? Like if you fly over a field, a flat field in an airplane, you can kind of see what's in that field, right? But with an iceberg, you know, there's a lot down there and you can mm-hmm. land on that iceberg. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on uh, iceberg exploration, but you can land on an iceberg. So you, you have some visible evidence that anchors your conversation, right? So you see something in the classroom, you take some notes, you record some video, you have something specific to talk about, and you use that as an entryway into talking about the rest of that iceberg. And the rest of that mm-hmm. iceberg in our metaphor here is the decision making. The professional judgment, the teacher thinking, the planning and preparation, right. the background knowledge, the relationships with students, the relation, you know, in, in Danielson or T test, those domains one and four uh, mm-hmm. components that, like, we know they're there, they're in our instructional uh, framework, they're in our teacher evaluation criteria, but we can't see them directly in an observation. So the way we get at them is by asking evidence based questions and then getting the teacher to talk and fill in, you know, that, that insight about where their thinking is and and what they've done that wasn't directly observable to us.
0: Yeah, and you have so many great, I mean, these these 10 evidence-based feedback, questions on feedback, I mean, these are fabulous. Uh, So these are great ones for folks to kind of put in their toolbox, uh, write down to plan to ask in a follow-up to a walkthrough or an observation with a teacher that you are, wanting to to coach maybe right and work through that coaching stance with you know as we think about observations and and you mentioned you know some of our our rubrics or frameworks that we look at for teaching the idea of look fors uh, there's this way of thinking about them that uh, and any observation checklist that we might have that implies that when we come in, just as you said, it's it's that the flyover. We've kind of seen everything. So um, if we can't, as you mentioned, these questions can kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. You know, for that that role of evidence. Is there any other um, things that you might have in your toolbox as you think about the role of evidence in feedback conversations, especially if it's not anything that we directly saw in the classroom. We're we're looking in that observation checklist and maybe because we were only there for a short moment, we weren't able to check everything on our checklist. Um, How do we navigate that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to to recognize that having a list of look-fors is a little bit different than having evaluation criteria right it's an evidence yeah. problem right uh, across the course of the school year we do need to be able to evaluate you know is this person meeting expectations in those kind of behind the scenes professional responsibilities, are they doing planning? Are they collaborating, contacting parents and all that? We do need mm-hmm. to find ways to uh, to substantiate that, but we should never expect that we're going to be able to see that in the classroom, right? Like you didn't pick up the phone and call a parent during the lesson, right? That's right. not going to happen. Right. And much of what we might wish we could see in a lesson is simply not going to be observable. And mm-hmm. that speaks to both the complexity of teaching and the time constraints we face, you know, like 99.9% of this teacher's instruction, you are not going to see Right, Right? You're just not going to be there most of the year. And I think we've got to recognize that anytime that's not the case, anytime we do feel like we're seeing what we're looking for, probably somebody is playing tricks on us, right? If you Mm -hmm. walk into the classroom and teachers are doing exactly what you expected, it's probably because... You clearly communicated what you wanted them to show you, and then they saw you show up, and they decided, "Oh, I better do it," and then they did it. So we, we've got a real sampling problem here when it comes to look fours. Uh, you know, just the the reality that people can't do everything all the time. They can't use every single strategy and meet every single expectation 100 of the time. Like sometimes you've got to pass back papers, sometimes you've got to review, sometimes kids are taking a test. You know, there are all these different reasons that people can't show us what we want to see, and the evidence based approach means starting with what actually happened, like what we actually observed and saying, you know, this might not be a super rich form of evidence. If, you know, mm-hmm. if I go in the classroom and you're passing back papers and the kids are taking a test, it's not gonna be super evidence rich, but that's that's the reality that we've got to work with. I can't, you know, I can't squeeze water from a rock, right? I can't uh, get something out of that 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 really is not there. And I think what it comes down to ultimately with a lot of our observation checklists is they're just not realistic. And if we insist mm-hmm. on using them, sometimes what we're really insisting on is people tricking us and saying, "Oh, yep, I'll show you what you want to see as soon as you walk in," and then I'll go back to whatever I was doing, and probably yeah. whatever they were doing <laughs> is what they needed to be doing. And if not, then that's a you know a different conversation. So I'm just not yeah. a fan of uh, observation checklists or look fours. I, I just think mm-hmm. we got to start with what's what's actually taking place. Write it down, take some video, look at it together. You know, I think right. that's you know, and and really no other profession. Adopts that kind of checklist approach, either, of uh, you know, I want to see this when I walk in the room. You know, it's mm-hmm. we start with uh, with what people are doing and talk about that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't think I've ever really thought of the look fours or observation checklist as something I was expecting to see everything in in one fell swoop. Right. Um, I think it was just what what was observed, and you know take that as a snapshot and in our, in our virtual coaching here at Sydney, we talk about how those, those videos, which are often very short and focused around a particular goal. It's just a snapshot. It's a snapshot from just that particular week. And just kind of that underlying, um, connotation that we aren't taking this, you know, for more than it is, it's just a grain of salt. Right. And it's not the whole, the whole thing. So, um, yeah, you've got me thinking now a little bit around those look for's and observations checklists that we see so commonly in all of our schools for sure.
1: So well, and, and that, yeah. And that's not to say that we shouldn't we should never have right. you know a certain feel or a certain tone, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes those are those are the majority of the things on the checklist, you know, does it feel positive? Are students engaged? You know, like it's not an unreasonable look for to want students to be engaged in some way, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, when we get more specific, sometimes we we start to expect things that are unrealistic to see right. in a 10-minute, you know, walkthrough.
0: Yeah. Right, as you're just kind of popping from classroom to classroom, absolutely. So I really enjoyed this conversation and talking about the you know coaching stance from more of that administrator uh, view and the different roles that our administrators wear. We, we know our coaches um, who have that role of coach or specialist or whatever that particular title is, wear many hats, we talk about that a lot, but we don't always talk here on the Coach Replay Show about our campus and district administrators. So this has been really great. I want to uh, wrap us up with just a comment that Kim had posted earlier in the show, you know, just how tricky it is when coaches are administrators and shifting between can be tricky to navigate. Do you have any tips for our folks who either for lack of instructional coaches or for wanting to um, take that coaching stance from time to time, any tips for them on how to navigate that shift with their yeah. people?
1: yeah well thank you Cory, and thank you kim that's a that's a great question and an, mm-hmm. an important tension um i like what dr tanya Gori says and i know she's uh been a guest of yours uh, in yes. the past and uh you know she says in uh you know in my schools everybody has a coach but your coach is not your evaluator so i think if you have multiple administrators that's a great way to do it and just formally separate right. those those roles so you might have zero instructional coaches and two administrators and say okay the the teachers you evaluate and the mm-hmm. teachers you coach are gonna be two separate groups of people. So I think that's that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. I think the other way to do it is to simply keep the stakes as low as possible as much of the time as possible, right? So if if you're doing a walkthrough or a coaching cycle, you don't wanna go all the way and say, this is non-evaluative because mm-hmm. frankly, things that happen our fair game as, as evidence in the evaluation, typically, mm-hmm. you don't want to promise that it's not evaluative, but you want to, to increase the sense of safety and lower the stakes as much as possible. One way to do that is to just do it more often, right? If it's not our one shot for the year, then the stakes get lower. If it's our one shot, you know, mm-hmm. very high stakes, uh, then uh, then people are going to be stressed. It's going to be more tense. Um, and then when it comes to that, uh, you know, that conversation itself, if you can remain in the coach role, wear that coach hat and not have to put the boss hat on, you're going to be in great shape right? Mm-hmm. If you have to also put the leader hat on and say, oh yeah, you need books, I'll order you some books. Well, that's not going to threaten the coaching relationship. You can wear the leader hat alongside the coach hat or the boss hat. It's just the boss hat and the coach hat don't go together. Right. Um, There's some friction there. Yeah. And I think sometimes we've just got to make a choice and say, you know what? I'm going to uh, torpedo the coaching value of this conversation because my boss role is more important here. I really need to deal with this this mm-hmm. issue. Um, so so don't be afraid to do that if you have to. Just know yeah. it, is a, it is a choice. Sometimes you do have to choose between them. You cannot, uh, you know, both hold people's feet to the fire and create a sense of safety <laughs> in, the same, right. in right. the same moment. Like sometimes you just got to do that and, and pick between them.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Psychological safety even talks a lot about how, um, you know, it's not about, psychological safety is not doesn't flourish in a place where everybody is comfortable where they are it does not flourish in a place where there is low accountability it actually is best in places where there's high accountability and uh, where people feel you know fulfilled and and driven and and to and okay to take risks and going to go outside of that box they're in that learning zone as well so it made me think of that when you said that Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's always a pleasure getting to talk with you. And uh, folks, if you have not already downloaded or signed up in the email to receive the notes and takeaways in your inbox directly today, be sure to access them in our learning center download it. You'll also find ways to be able to follow um, Justin so that way you can find out more about the Principal Center, access more great resources like these 10 questions, evidence-based questions for feedback. Follow him on Facebook and Twitter as well. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, Corey, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and great to speak with you.
0: Yeah, I want to remind folks as we get closer to the end of the month, we have a great episode Uh, next week. It's a a replay on uh, that phenomena, Devolson, Dark Evil Vortex of late September, October, November. It is setting in, y'all. So um, be thinking about that. That's coming up. We also have a whole lineup of shows for um, next month month of october it's almost here it's almost fall y'all and we are focusing on our uh mental uh, health and wellness so tune in for all of those shows be sure to like follow and subscribe to sydney and the coach replay show so you never miss another one thanks so much see y'all next week